Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Let's take a quick break. You know what's one of my favorite things to do post-dancing rehearsal? Not going to lie, it's putting on some sweatpants immediately and having a drink. You all know I love a glass of wine or two, but I also like to switch it up. So lately, Jason and I have been making a little cocktail at night using Rum Haven. Rum Haven believes Mother Nature did things right, so it's crafted using real coconut water and not using artificial preservatives or flavorings. It is so incredibly refreshing. I mentioned I like to add it to a cocktail, but it's also actually great over ice with a splash of club soda. It tastes like I'm on vacation, sitting on an island somewhere far, far away which is without a doubt a great feeling, especially during these crazy times. So make sure to follow at Rum Haven on Instagram because they post all types of these seasonal recipes. They do giveaways and tips. Plus, when you go to discover.rumhaven.com, you can find their latest blogs, quizzes, and any promotions they have going on. On one of their latest blog posts, they actually have some tips about planning your virtual watch party, which is pretty perfect since everyone's favorite reality show is back on Tuesdays. Be sure to have a little virtual drink with me, sip some Rum Haven, maybe even while you're listening to the pod. Let me know what you think. On today's Movie Talk, the Terminator franchise could be in big trouble, but we have a new Fantastic Beast movie happening. Then we are going right back to that Martin Scorsese versus Marvel debate. It's an interesting conversation, though, I promise. Hello, everyone. So happy to be back on Movie Talk, or maybe more so just to be sitting, period. And I am very happy that I'm going to be talking with Haley and Coy on today's show. We've got a really interesting lineup. I know what you're thinking with the Martin Scorsese versus Marvel conversation. It is a very interesting conversation right now, so hang tight on that one. First on our call sheet today is the state of the Terminator franchise. So we've got THR reporting that Terminator Dark fate could lose up to 130 million dollars for producing partners skydance media paramount pictures and 20th century fox each put up 30 percent of the film's 185 million dollar budget the outlet is also saying that at this point there are no plans for another terminator movie next up according to deadline warner brothers will move forward with the production on fantastic beasts and where to find them three in spring 2020 which is on track with what we did here last time production was pushed on the movie the film is working up against a previously announced release date of november 12th 2021. Now, here's a movie you should keep an eye on. Sandra Bullock has signed on to star in her second Netflix movie. This project is going to have her reciting the words of fellow Oscar winner Christopher McQuarrie. Not to be confused with the Clint Eastwood movie, this right here is a long gestating adaptation of the British miniseries Unforgiven. The film is going to have Bullock playing Ruth Slater, a woman who's released from prison after serving a sentence for a violent crime, only to re-enter a society that refuses to forgive her past. Facing severe judgment from the place she once called home, Ruth's only hope for redemption is finding the estranged younger sister she was forced to leave behind. Keep an eye on that one right there. Now, moving on to an interview from Yahoo with Roland Emmerich, who got surprisingly candid about Independence Day resurgence, ultimately agreeing that he probably shouldn't have made the movie at all. Here's what he said. I just wanted to make a movie exactly like the first, but then in the middle of production, Will opted out because he wanted to do Suicide Squad. I should have stopped making the movie because we had a much better script. Then I had to really fast cobble another script together. He also added, I should have just said no because all of a sudden I was making something. I criticized myself a sequel. Now, final item on the call sheet today. We're going back to the Martin Scorsese Marvel story because something rather significant dropped here. It's a New York Times op-ed. Here's a little bit of what he wrote in that piece. 
In many places around this country and around the world, franchise films are now your primary choice. If you want to see something on the big screen, it's a perilous time in film exhibition, and there are few independent th- fewer independent theaters than ever. The equation has flipped, and streaming has become the primary delivery system. Still, I don't know a single filmmaker who doesn't want to design films for the big screen to be projected before audiences in theaters. Before anyone starts freaking out saying we shouldn't be discussing that topic again, this article that we're focusing on comes from Matt Goldberg on Collider.com, who brings up an excellent point, which could be the core issue of this entire debate. We're going to get to it later in the show. First, though, I got to introduce my panelists, Haley Fouch and Coy. I feel like it's been so long since the, the three of us have been here I, on a Tuesday. We're reunited. Destiny. This is the table of meant to I be. miss this. I miss this so, so much. How are you guys doing? How's yeah. life? Life. Ford versus Ferrari, so good. Oh, I'm like riding that high, literally riding, speedy high, <laughs> car puns. All right, that's it's going th- great, guys. I, I'm still riding the marathon high, and I've I don't think I've ever appreciated chairs so much in my life. I imagine <laughs> it's so nice to sit down. You did what I saw those cars do last night, and I'm very impressed. It's a <laughs> I, long way to run. It it is a long way to run. Uh, yeah, I, I'll tell everybody about it and all the uh, the awkward things that happen behind the scenes, like. You would not believe some of the signs that you see. I mean, like, I want to make a really dirty. There's tons of people lining the streets. I mean, from start to finish. It does not matter what borough you're in. There are people like cheering everybody on, not just friends and family, but complete strangers. And like, there's so many like gross signs. It's like, like cheer at this sign if you peed in your pants a little. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was something like, like, don't fart your chart. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like every time I passed a creative sign like that, I giggled a little. And you know what? That helped. Motivation. That's how it's done. And there are puppies. Puppies. Oh, my God. I had to give credit to the puppies. I'll I'll share a photo of this eventually. But what you do is, like, my start time was at 1030. You get there at the crack of dawn before the sun even rises. I think I was there at, like, 6 o'clock. And you just sit there and wait because they have to close down the roads. And in this little, like, start village that you have to hang out in for four hours, one of the booths there are therapy dogs. And it's seriously, like, it brightens your mood in a heartbeat to just walk in a little pen with tons of puppies who are super cute and, like, so kind to give me the time of day because I needed it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) From, From one high to, sadly, a major low here, the first thing we're discussing today is Terminator Dark Fate pretty much bombing at the box office. This is a major loss for everybody involved. Yes, it's better for Paramount that they split the cost with two other entities, but this is a major problem for this franchise when I believe the original hope was to keep making more Terminator movies, and now it doesn't seem like that's the case here. So right now, I could ask you guys, do you have any hopes to get another Terminator movie? And I'm going to bet the answer in the near future is no. But what do you think long term? I mean, it is a popular IP. Is it only a matter of time before we get another Genesis to Dark Fate where they try to bring it back again? Yeah, I mean, they love IP in the studio world, in the TV world. I fully believe that this will eventually come back in some way. Are we going to see these characters in this timeline and this narrative again i have doubts about that so do you think that that's where the hope lies if they bring it back bringing back not bringing back any of the familiar characters and maybe just doing a total reboot Uh uh-huh i really liked uh the sarah connor chronicles which was on tv i think there's look we love the terminator (laughs) our dear friend terminator and I actually, I really like Dark Fate. I'm pro-Dark Fate. I wish it made more money because I would love to see Linda Hamilton come back. But I think that's an, probably enough for everyone at this point of this story, these characters. It's just a lot for a lot of our lives. And it's the, not just that it's a lot, it's, the, it's essentially the same story over and over again. The, aside from uh, Salvation, mm-hmm. the sequels are pretty similar time and time again, including this one, which, again, I like very much, but it is very much T2 all over again. So, yes, the hope could be if... I don't know why this will continue to happen, because clearly it's not making money, but it will. There will be more Terminator. I'd like a smaller one. I, I think that the issue is the, the budget. If, if $400 million is a failure maybe look at how you're building the movies. Yeah. Like, I, I just feel like we're, we're 10 years away from when D-Day is supposed to happen. 
and we should start building a sh- movie that feels contained and like maybe give us the D-Day movie. Like we, those amazing scenes in Terminator 1 look great still today. Like I watched it in 4K on the, the 35th anniversary or whatever it was recently and it still looks good. That movie cost no money. Mm-hmm. That movie, uh, even like today adjusted for inflation was very, I think it was like $6 million. I would much rather see like a $100 million movie instead of a $300 million movie or a $50 million movie. We don't need every action set piece to be the biggest thing ever. I'd rather see a movie that's, the thing that makes Terminator interesting is the metaphor and the allegory and all the things it represents. I don't need everything to be trying to up the T-1000. Is T-1000? 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 the gooey I haven't seen T-2 in a while. Yeah, T-1000. Like, I don't need everything to try to up those stakes. I'd rather see, like, more ingenuity. And I love Tim Miller. Like, I think Tim Miller makes incredible film, but... I wouldn't mind a smaller Terminator. I wouldn't mind something that wouldn't have to make the money it needs to make to make this money back. Well, it also kind of ties into like, I, I don't know the specifics on what it costs to get the stars back, but that usually takes up a pretty hefty chunk of budget. Yeah. You change the characters, you change the budgeting mm-hmm. allocation for something like that. And ultimately the appeal, uh, love these characters. And of course the appeal in the first two films is very much built around Sarah Connor. But what, what has made people fascinated for so long is the idea of the world, which can be explored in sort of infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. I do wish that somebody would just, they would get the funding to make a new robot apocalypse thing that's not Terminator. But I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to, yeah. we're so like keeping our, our money close, like yeah. we're, we're pocketing our doubloons. I would love it if the next wave of, you know, reboots, sequels, reimaginings, basically taking an IP and milking it for all it's worth is kind of following the Joker path where you take something that's super popular, you pare down that budget and you make a lot of money because you didn't spend a lot of money. I mean, it just seems like time and time again, especially in 2019 in particular. I mean, my mind always goes back to Men in Black International. I mean, this isn't an IP necessarily, but even with Paramount, you have to think about Gemini Man. Look at what's happening with these movies, with epic, epic budgets. I mean, really, one of the only ones that succeeded this year, I guess, is is Avengers Endgame. And, you know, Lion King did make a lot of money, and it cost a pretty penny, too. But how are studio execs not seeing that it's not worth it? And the cool thing is, like, for something like Terminator, and I love Dark Fate, too, but maybe the right path for something like Dark Fate is to have a more contained story focused on Sarah Connor. Maybe Mm -hmm. use her story and what she's been doing between the events of T2 and what you want to achieve in Dark Fate as an opportunity to bridge the gap because we can't ignore the fact that this franchise after Salvation and Genesis it needed more goodwill Genesis was not that far (laughs) far ago at this point if they had made a great contained movie focused on Sarah Connor and said to people Mm -hmm. huh like maybe I should give this another chance going this path maybe when you spent all the money that you did on Dark Fate that could have gotten more butts and seats. Well, and it wasn't like our number one complaint after the film, after we walked out, was too long, could have cut it down. Like, you don't need to mm. go that all out on every action yeah. scene, every... Not, not everything needs to be a 20 minute set piece. The beauty know? of Terminator is how pared down it was. If you rewatch yeah. the first Terminator, they were stealing shots in LA. They were guerrilla filmmaking. James Cameron was running around like, ah, before the cops come and made a movie. <laughs> and I feel like there's something about like being forged from pressure. Like diamonds come from pressure. Like I love when filmmakers have to have some ingenuity. Like I love when you have to get creative because of circumstance. Steven uh, Spielberg and Jaws is like the perfect example. Yeah, like that movie shouldn't work, but it does because of direct, like, uh, one of, like, I love the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I, I'm a huge Heath Ledger fan, and I, I miss that man dearly. And what they had to do because they lost Heath was the one role was then four roles, and they cast three actors to play what would have just been Heath. And the imagination that sprung from that made an entirely different film. So literally, the biggest circumstance of horror, you made a movie from, from something that shouldn't have worked with no budget because you had to be creative. An interesting point to bring up. So it's not officially on the lineup, but now might be the right time to bring in the Roland Emmerich quote that we teased earlier in the call sheet because that's an instance where that did not work. He lost Will Smith and that creative pressure didn't churn out a diamond. It's like a big fat turd. Well, <laughs> churned out it, otherwise. it wasn't a, a movie that was designed to be that though. It was a movie that was designed to have Will Smith and then they had to really do a left turn out of nowhere yeah. and adjust. I think if you if you set out to make more of the Sarah Connor version of the film that you suggested, then you have the potential for something really special. But, it, you know, if your star is just like, nope, I'm out in the middle of a totally different frame. Put him in a painting. And Will Smith in a sequel, he's in a painting. Yeah. Every, <laughs> during a test flight. 
sorry. <laughs> I love the bit of slack and the bit of terrible. Just like here's a painting of our lead. <laughs> Moving on, like it's one of my I favorite things. I hope in things. his home, Will Smith has a copy of each painting, yeah. and I hope we get another Will Smith franchise with a painting in it, just so we can have a whole wall of a trilogy. I like the idea that if he's in the movie, he does a theme song. If he's not in the movie, he gets a painting. Oh, like God. there's art around Will Smith movies. And to be fair, I read those Roland Emmerich quotes, and you know, I kind of applauded the guy because you guys know how strongly I feel about Independence Day as an Independence Day lover. I mean, it was a big part of my childhood growing up, and it still is in my life to this day, and how much I disliked Resurgence. But, you know, to, to kind of have the balls to come out there and say, you know, it, it was a mistake. We shouldn't have gone through with it. It's, it's worth at least discussing that type of thing, because I also think that it speaks to another things that studios should learn right now, which is, when to push pause or stop if something falls through. It's almost like, I mean, this constant desperation to just, like, milk your franchises for all they're worth so you can compete with Disney the Juggernaut. Like, no. Like, use what you have to give us something that maybe, you know, the big Marvels and Star Wars out there can. Like, start to get creative and lower the budgets and, you know, use your resources properly and your creativity properly, too. I agree, but I also, like, if you look at, I don't know, it's tricky to look at the numbers, but if you look at the top numbers, you look at the top ten of the year, there's one non-franchise film in there, which us. is Us. That's it. And that's what they're looking at. Yeah. Like, it's very clear that it's a business. It's the movie business. So if you're going to look at what's succeeding, you follow that path. The problem is it's a hundred franchises a year, so we're all exhausted. I'm enjoying more and more, and I'm a, I, I host Collider Heroes. I'm enjoying more and more <laughs> movies that have an end. I'm enjoying more and more movies that don't set themselves up for a sequel or a series or a run. Like, I love Jojo Rabbit, Peanut Butter Falcon, uh, Ford Ferrari. I've, I've really enjoyed movies that are like, that's the movie. And I like walk out like, those credits sure did feel like the end. And I miss movies just having that three-act structure that feels like a resolution, because you go to the movies for a journey and, and escapism. I don't always and sometimes I do want but I don't always want to be trying to tie it into something so I would love if franchises either had new IP finished where it didn't have to be like this like I haven't seen this yet I'm dying to I'm seeing it today or tomorrow I imagine this ends in a cliffhanger of sorts where it's going to be like maybe you get more I want a movie to just be done like Terminator 1 ended T2 happened because they got creative and I miss that the point is it doesn't have to be purely business. It's like I think that some of the franchise exhaustion this year comes from the fact that they're all doing the same thing. They're all throwing gigantic chunks of money yeah. and big name stars at very familiar properties that are like on the cusp of people wanting them back. It's like really was anybody out there just dying for another Men in Black movie? <laughs> is anybody out there really clamoring for another Charlie's Angels movie? Like no. And, and if you're going to go that route where you're going going with let's say a Charlie's Angels or a Men in Black find like a really interesting little corner because those are great world building examples where there's some little detail in there that could have benefited from the Joker approach a smaller character driven approach that lets you explore a corner you never thought you were going to get the opportunity to in a big explosive action packed CGI fest that I think is where you bring people in and yeah maybe you don't make a billion dollars at the box office but at least you're spending like 50 million and you are firmly in the black when you come out of it. What I'm, and I think the Joker's a great example of when that works. What I'm afraid of is the examples that don't and suits looking at those like Bumblebee. Like I, I think Bumblebee Fair is point. an impossibly better film than the last four Transformers movies. And they did literally that. They hired a, comp, a yeah. competent director. They made a new story. They, they used nostalgia. They did all the things that are hot right now mm-hmm. and it still didn't do what it should have. And well, I think Bumblebee is fantastic. Also Bumblebee still cost $135 million. I'm That's not, I'm not, talking about big budgets here i am talking about those mid-range take these fancy ips you have get the diehards into the theater and then also maybe try to find new ways to appeal to people who don't care about those ips 135 million dollar budget is not the way to do it if a bumblebee let's say cost 50 million we would be having a completely different kind of conversation right but now. do you think it's possible i do, don't think you can do bumblebee uh, yeah i was gonna say do you think it's possible CGI. to do a movie about a one of your leads is a is cgi yeah <laughs> not to the, the demands of a 2018 audience i don't know it's because sometimes when i think about it and i don't want to you know uh 
I don't I don't want to lessen what the VFX teams do in a sense, but you know, it's like now I'm using the Terminator example because I think T2 was one of the first movies out there to have a lead character that relot that you couldn't bring to screen without CG. Yeah. And I know that movie costs a lot more to make than the first Terminator, but it's going back to that pressure of having to make something out of very little. There are creative ways to get into it. It's like, I mean, again, think about the shark in Jaws and the way that he hit it in order to make the most of what he had at the time. I'm not saying Bumblebee is the best example, but there are ways to make movies that we assume right now are CG heavy movies mm. without all of that extra spending, but still making it something special. And in the end, probably making it something different in the process. And I also think there's a hunger for less CGI in movies. Like there's definitely, I, I find myself enjoying a movie the more tangible it feels. I keep coming back to Ford V Ferrari because I loved it last night, but <laughs> all the cars were you could touch them. Like, I really liked watching a movie, that, and I love Fast and Furious, but I liked watching a movie where I knew that all of those stunts were tangible. I liked watching a movie where when a car skid across the screen, it wasn't a bunch of ones and zeros. So I would love if movies that don't necessarily need CGI, I'd rather have one less action set piece and have it be actual practical than, than necessarily do the other. The reason the Mission Possibles are doing so well is because Tom Cruise is a madman. Like, Tom Cruise is doing this stuff. That helicopter he's spiraling into a mountain is Tom Cruise. It's not a CGI helicopter with Tom Cruise's face. It's the man. Mm-hmm. So I think more and more we need to, like, one, stunt people, Academy Award. Yes. Two, we need to get more practical effects as a focus. Hire Rick Baker more and do less CGI <laughs> or do the practical with augmented CGI. Do those things again. It may lower your budget or it'll balance things out a little. And then we can make movies that are smart, good, and have the pressure to make them good. And then your franchises might survive. Well, I, our next panel topic is the Fantastic Beast 3 story. So we might as well fold that into the conversation right now, too, because... I mean, look at a... So it started with the Harry Potter franchise. Huge, huge hit. And then all of a sudden you get Fantastic Beasts. And the first one, it, you know, it was fine. It made... Um, it cost $180 million to make. And it wound up making something like $814 million worldwide. And then with the second one, budget goes up to $200 million, And the worldwide total comes down to 653 Which isn't like a small chunk of change, but... One might assume that that trend is going to continue with Fantastic Beast 3. So you guys hear that Fantastic Beast 3 is a go and is going to shoot next year. I mean, do you care at all? And do you have any faith that the number is going to go back up with a third installment? No and no. <laughs> I, I missed the second one. I watch movies for a living. It's So the second one, I have said this before, but it's worth repeating in this kind of conversation. I liked the first one quite a bit. It did not hit Harry Potter levels for me, but it had a lot of potential. That second one made me feel bad for not being a book reader and someone who is steeped in Harry Potter knowledge. I felt left out in certain parts. And the parts where I didn't feel left out, I feel like they took elements that I liked from the first one and kind of just obliterated them right before my eyes. And it basically left me in a place where not only did I not want to continue with a franchise I didn't feel a part of anymore, but also I had no interest because certain characters that I love ran straight into a wall and I didn't understand why they went in that direction. So I've got absolutely no faith in this one. And not only do I think that worldwide total is going down, I think that budget is going up because this what? is this is a franchise. I mean, what else do you do after the crimes of Grindelwald with all of that action and everything? It's like Harry Potter. You have to pave the way to the war. And I have a feeling that's what they're doing with this one. The spectacle's only going to get bigger if I had to make a prediction. Yeah. Well, this is such a cart ahead of the horse scenario where, mm-hmm. you know, they were like, Harry Potter's huge. Let's make seven more movies based on a very short companion book she wrote. And that's... That's where you hit the really kind of ugh, gross part of franchising. And I, I don't feel gross about Dark Fate as a franchise piece. I think they put a lot of heart into mm-hmm. that, and it was really well done. This feels grosser to me and exploitative of a fandom and just sort of thinking, well, we can print cash off of this. And it turns out you kind of can't or not for too long. It didn't because, have to be, though. No, it didn't have to be. Nothing has to yeah. be terrible and corporate it but it's just like ends ta- up that way I'm, t- I'm talking about like taking a companion piece that didn't yeah. necessarily have like an epic narrative to it like the main harry potter books mm-hmm. i thought it was kind of cool that they were taking something that just gave us a whole bunch of elements and built a story around it it's just the story they built around it wound up going nowhere because they didn't have a real story around it yet they were again hard ahead cart ahead of horse they were they were trying to build the story as they go which i think the big big news in this 
uh, new report is not that it got the green light or that it's heading to Brazil, mm-hmm. which is interesting. It's that it has a co-writer yes. now. Originally, J.K. Rowling was supposed to write it herself. Oh, interesting. And her first screenwriting debut was Crimes of Grindelwald, which did not go over so hot. So now Steve Cloves is co-writing it with her, which I think is a good sign. Like, he has a lot of experience in this world, in screenwriting. That is the one thing from the report where I was like, ooh, maybe this could be an upswing back to where I'd like to see the franchise headed. It does make me feel a little bit better about it, but I think this goes right back to what we were just talking about because I I think this thing is doomed unless you bring that number down because I think (laughs) this is in a similar situation to Terminator where... Crimes of Grindelwald wasn't all that long ago. They have to win yeah. back a lot of the the fans' faith right now. And yeah. I think that's going to be a very, very tall order. And it's just, I, I think they're screwed with the budget going up. What did, if, if you heard, as someone who skipped the last one, if all your friends came out of three and were like, dude, trust me, it's phenomenal. There. You're there. I've gone back all to right. franchises. I've even gone back to the movies I've skipped and been like, oh, in order to this to make sense, I will go. I will absolutely see a movie if it's if it's got its, its nest back. But I'm such a Harry Potter fan fan that when I was like I thought the first one was fine and then the second one I heard was bad so I was like "Mm, I don't know like I don't need this because I I, like the Harry Potter so precious but I love this world so if I hear the third one's good I'll watch not only the third one but the second one as well but it has to get me back Mm -hmm. like it doesn't have carte blanche I'm not just there I think word of mouth and making an excellent film is the only way you can save the franchise. It's not going to be a bigger budget. It's not going to be heading to a new location. I would love if if sequels stopped doing the thing where they think escalation is the only answer. I I like when things go like sideways instead of up at all times. Like I think Fast Five is the best of the franchise, and I like six and seven and eight. But once they were superheroes, I was like, well, you can't go unless they go to space, which they might, and unless they call the tenth one Fast Ten Year Seatbelts, which they should. Wait, wait, two questions for you guys. I'll probably forget the second one by the. By the time I say the first one. So with what you just said, do you think Dark Fate didn't create enough positive buzz in order to bring people back to the franchise? No, not really. It was pretty mixed. There was like there was definitely a divide in reviews between people who who liked it enough to be like, yeah, it's a B. It's a B plus. Nobody was like a plus best Terminator movie ever. So it's. This, I mean, this might be a bad example because there was such a big distance between Mad Max uh, movies, but Mad Max oh. was like, this movie shouldn't be happening. And then all of a sudden it came yeah. out and everyone's like, masterpiece. Great and then, example. Yeah, and, and then a everyone ran example to of not using it. CGI as heavily and using practical Max. with CGI augmented. Because that movie's got a ton of CGI, but you don't see it. It's blended in with practical. There are people on, like there are polecats. Yeah. And they're actually on those <laughs> things. That's how you do a sequel. That's how yeah, you come CGI back. CGI is more years. environmental it, than exactly, anything. To keep like, you know, the, the, the windstorm aren't real to blow off the stuntmen <laughs> but like that's how you do a sequel that's how you escalate without it being that's how you go parallel and up without just shooting mm-hmm. up like that that's a different i think that's a great example of how you make a franchise work again shockingly i remember my second question because i want to clarify <laughs> that i don't know that they're definitely upping the budget on this that is my prediction do you guys think that even though the profits went down for crimes of grindelwald we're going to see a bigger budgeted movie in fantastic beast 3 i think pirates 3 didn't make as much money and pirates 4 was still a bigger budget mm-hmm. I, like i think the pirates franchise is an example of like if we throw money at it they will come and they didn't mm-hmm. i i agree with that i also again not to harp on my same point, but look at that cast. Where do you, like, yeah. where's the budget being cut when you have that many A-listers involved? It, that's already a massive ask. And then you're taking it to Brazil. You're you're going international mm-hmm. again. These are all huge paid. And, of course, CGI aplenty. But I've noticed, like, as we're complaining about, a lot of people are saying, like, the mid-range film is dead. And it's definitely less. Yeah. But... More movies are doing the the Jojo Rabbit, Dolomite mm-hmm. is my name. Like, there are more than people think. So I think that if we support those movies, then maybe studios will have, like, some non-franchises to point out and go, like, oh, maybe we use this IP, but we do it this way. Like, maybe if we see the movies that are mid-range, it'll, it'll show them, like, look at the profit margin. And then hopefully franchises can start finding their way back to, like, reasonable budgets. That's see, a see mid-range film. That's a tricky one, too, that ties into the whole Martin Scorsese yes. thing, which is what is, well. what is being distributed <laughs> and where, how, what's accessible and how accessible is it. And something like uh, Dolomite, how do you track the success of that? Because Netflix is notoriously yeah. secret with their numbers. But 
how many theaters did JoJo go to? How many, you know, of course we get everything in L.A., but you take it more to middle America, and that's not the case. And look at Kevin Smith's doing. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot is the number one per screen average beating even Endgame because wow. every single screen is sold out, and he's touring with it. He's doing it like a stand-up comedy special. When he brings it to a town, they play it, and then it's open there. So, like, Kevin and Jay are literally sitting and watching the movie with audiences, <laughs> and then it's there, but every single seat is selling out, and the tickets aren't, like, $17. They're, like, 50 100 bucks or whatever because you get a Q&A, you get the movie, yeah. you get a, you get a night with Kevin Smith and Jay Muse, but that is causing this 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 low budget film to make more per screen than Endgame. Congrats, Kevin. I think that's the <laughs> way to do movies like that. I think that's the answer to that problem. But Dolomite could have done that. I would have, in a heartbeat, gone to an open mic conversation with Wesley Snipes and Eddie Murphy to see Dolomite is my name and paid yeah. like fifty bucks for it. That would have been a great way like, for a, like the art and the the true story to reflect it's the reality. A movie also, about making a four wall. I finally, like, I finally watched it. It's it's Delightful. really it's really good, especially for someone who just loves movie making or has a craft that they're being told like, no, you're not good enough, you can't do it. Like, if you need an inspiring watch, I, like I just I felt all the love for what they were putting their heart and souls into in that movie. We are gonna uh, turn our attention back to franchises in a hot second, though. But first, <laughs> we gotta tell you about some content coming your way on Collider Video. Let's hear from Amy right now. Hi, I'm Amy Dallin, one of the hosts of Collider Heroes. And starting right now, you can catch our show Tuesday nights with a new Collider Heroes and a longer Collider Heroes podcast where Koi and I are going to talk your ears off. You already know that's coming. So make sure to go to YouTube, subscribe, and find us on the Collider Heroes podcast feed for all of that sweaty goodness. The Witching Hour is all over Collider right now. You can listen to that horror-filled podcast with myself, with Haley Fouch. We talk about witchiness. We talk about slashers. We talk about space horror. You name it. All on that show on the Collider Factory feed. And on top of that, you can find an article all about Witching Hour every single Tuesday on Collider.com. Check it out. Get scared. Hopefully you survive the Witching Hour. All right, the time has come. Let's talk about this Martin Scorsese versus Marvel stuff. But actually, I should probably rephrase that because that's not necessarily what we're talking about right now because Matt Goldberg wrote a piece on Collider.com and I just want to read like one little bit about it because he highlights something that I think is very true of this whole conversation. And I understand people who are big fans of Marvel out there and their feelings are hurt, like mine are, when someone like Martin Scorsese, an icon who I greatly admire, is like, your stuff isn't as good as this stuff. Like, yeah, that bums you out. But I think Goldberg hits it on the uh, head in terms of what this is really about. And in his article, he wrote something to the effect of... uh, Theatrical distribution is more of the issue right now, and, you know, largely the major chains out there are not doing a very good job. Ticket prices have gone up, but then, you know, wages remain low. You're not seeing the movies projected the best they possibly could be. The lighting is a problem. The audio is a problem. And he basically uh, wrote that Scorsese is directing his ire in the wrong direction. It's not what the studios are making that's the problem. It's that the cost of entry has become too high. Even if tomorrow every studio stopped making franchise films and put all their efforts into our turd-driven pictures, I doubt people would flock to cinemas to see those movies. Just because they're there, they'd stay home and watch a comforting rom-com on Netflix or a true crime series on Hulu or a prestige drama on Amazon. The barrier isn't that franchise films take up too many screens it's that the cost of admission is too high for anything that doesn't comfort what say you about this take on this whole conversation i like his take uh i definitely see everything because of like subscription-based services and when i had movie pass when that was any movie theater i tended to see every single thing because in my mind it was this cost like i paid this much and i saw every movie and it was glorious i got to go to the limleys i got to go to the you know the like i got to see every type of movie but now with amc a list it tends to be the bigger films. It tends to be the blockbusters. And that's what you'd spend the $17 on. If you can wait three months and see a talkie, then you're going to just wait three months and it's, it's at home. It's streaming. So I think the problem is the cost of the actual experience. Like once you've spent $50 by ticket and popcorn and all those things, you're not going to want to watch a movie that in three months will feel similar. I think everything should be seen in theaters. I think the experience is the, the audience, not necessarily just the way you're seeing it, but how, how you feel seeing it. Because comedies are very similar between 60-inch screens and 60-foot screens, but you don't have that many people laughing with you. You don't have the experience. You don't have that, that, that church-like like power 
but if you're spending 17 bucks, a lot of people aren't going to be there and it, and it just doesn't feel the same. So I think dropping movie ticket prices or upping the way we're doing subscription service, changing any of those things, that's the way to get butts in seats. And I don't think it's fair to judge the studios making the movies that people want to spend a lot of money to see because it is such a spectacle film. So I don't think it's fair to judge like he has been up until this comment. <laughs> Haley, where do you fall on this? Oh, um, look, I, 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 uh, I'm not sure if I, I think that it's out of control, impossibly expensive to go see movies. It is certainly more and more expensive as time goes on, but the cost of everything is generally rising. Um, and when you talk about something like Dolomite, like that was, that screen at Fantastic Fest and that was something that people were like obsessed with having the theatrical experience around that, but that's not an option that was made available to a lot of people. So I don't think this is like, everything in the industry is very confusing and complicated right now. Streamers are making everything difficult. The, the sort of like massive blockbuster technique that we've been discussing at length in this issue, our issue, yes, this issue of movie tech. Uh, (laughs) But you know, these are all, all complicated facets. I do think that, that price, and especially if you have a family, the price of going out to a movie for, you know, two kids, mom and dad, snacks for everyone, or if it's just mom and dad, babysitter at home, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff gets really exorbitant parking, all of that. But I, I think that's just a facet of it, mm-hmm. and it's it's certainly not a a one solution for all of the problems. In terms of what Martin Scorsese thinks, I don't agree with him, but I also don't care that I don't agree with him. Like he can have his opinions; he's earned his opinions. <laughs> they're they're very respectable opinions. Um, and I think it was Ted tweeted something. Uh, we know Ted, director of Mohawk, and we yes, are still yes. here. That was like. Maybe it's we're horror fans. We're so used to our favorite types of movie being generally critically disregarded that I think I have that in me anyway. Like, okay, you don't have to like my thing. Yeah. I like my thing. Um, of course, there's cinema, and that's that's all semantics anyway. So, th- what he's talking about, like larger issues of how we approach filmmaking are worth talking about mm-hmm. more so than being offended by the way he's saying it. Totally agree with that. And I think that's been a big problem with leading up to this is his statements have been like, we've been playing one sentence of the actual quote yeah. and we're not doing the context of the quote. I disagree with what he's saying, but like, I don't care if Garth Brooks doesn't like Jadena. Like it, I don't <laughs> listen to Garth Brooks. Like it doesn't affect me and I don't insult Garth Brooks by not listening to him. It's not my thing. So I don't think it really matters if Martin Scorsese doesn't like Avengers. That doesn't affect my opinion of The Departed or or the Avengers, but what he says in the rest of that context does affect the greater cinematic experience because he's not wrong and he has more perspective than most. And at the end of the day, he said Netflix was a problem and then went to Netflix. At the end of the day, he's clearly reshaping his narrative to suit the times. It's just coming from a place of duress. And that's also terrifying. The fact that Martin Mm -hmm. Scorsese is doing things that he didn't want to do with the release of his movie Mm. is definitely saying a lot about where the industry is. And that's, that's to me, the most terrifying thing about all this is one Martin Scorsese, not getting a wide theatrical release on a movie that seems like it's been 10 years in the making Two, or at least because like these actors. Two, the fact that we have only the blockbuster movies getting the attention. And three, the fact that journalists will not stop asking people what they think of Martin Scorsese's <laughs> comments. Like if you've got five minutes with Martin Scorsese and you don't talk oh, about yeah. – if you yeah. don't spend a minute on, on five of your favorite movies or if you're talking to someone else and you're like, hey, I don't get to talk to you for long. But what do you think about that other successful person's opinion about this successful franchise? <laughs> it freaks me out. So I think this whole thing is a mess and I think it shows like where the film industry is as a whole. Oh my. I have so many responses. First <laughs> – what he's what he says about certain movies that I like will never change my personal opinion where I've always had an issue with this whole conversation from day one is just I will never be okay with anybody out there, especially with someone as big of a microphone as Martin Scorsese, telling anybody in this world that your movie is lesser than my movie. And I'm not saying like Marvel versus a movie that his uh, one of the movies that he makes. I'm just saying that. You know, if somebody out there loves something, I will never be okay with somebody else telling them that that movie isn't, like, at the same level of something that I love. I feel like everybody is entitled to love the movies that they love, and I will never put somebody down if, like, they love Independence Day Resurgence. You know what? Go freaking love it. I don't care. That's not going to change my opinion, but I'm certainly not going to tell you that your movie is less than, and you shouldn't consider that art if it's not art in my eyes. So that's always the issue that I've taken. But overall, 
I, like, I, I really do wish that people would stop asking auteur <laughs> filmmakers about Marvel because I am kind of sick and tired of talking about that. But, I mean, whether it's Martin Scorsese talking about Marvel or if it's us talking about Netflix versus Disney+, Plus, it's all part of the same conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just coming at it from a different angle every time we discuss it. And it's that... Like because this is one of the most tumultuous times in cinema. Everything is changing right before our eyes, and I think, you know, when you talk about you know Disney Plus coming up, that's that's one angle to look at it. When you talk about Martin Scorsese's terms, that's another angle to look at it, and it's all going to collide sooner rather than later, and we are going to see an epic shift in how we view movies probably in the next couple of months going forward, and it's going to mm. constantly be evolving, and there are so many things to consider, but. This right here with the uh, the whole idea of uh, just the major theater chains kind of upping their game, that is so necessary in my eyes right now. You need to make that experience worth it or you are doomed. Because when you were explaining, Haley, about what it costs a family, mm. whether they bring their kids or they're paying a babysitter to go see a movie in the theaters, that right there is the mentality that makes someone shift from saying, well, it's not worth it going to a theater. I can just wait until this movie hits Netflix because it's so much more cost effective. You could save money and then spend that money that you're saving on something else that's important to you, too. The theater chains need to change how this experience is happening. They need to make it worth every single penny that people are paying to see the movies on the big screen. I also think there's a, a cultural situation behind this where our concept of what kinds of movies are worth seeing in a theater is a little bit skewed in terms of we tend to think that if it has explosions or or effects then that's what you want to see in the theater and that if it's just emotionally fueled and that's Mm. something that's well might as well do it at home I don't think that's true and I think that regardless of the content of the film being in the theatrical setting changes the experience I I go back to this movie often especially in this conversation Uh, I really liked Velvet Buzzsaw in theaters Mm. and it was really funny and the kind of humor was very tongue in cheek and the audience was uproarious I went to the premiere and the premiere audience is obviously the right audience to see that comedy with I haven't watched it again on Netflix because everyone said it wasn't good, and I want to hold on to my experience. I haven't seen it on the small screen by myself because the experience I had was fantastic. And that's what happens when you see a comedy. There's no effects in that movie practically. It's not an explosive movie. But because of the experience you have, because you're watching it in a theater, that's a different animal. And I also think it's the times because we're more and more isolated. Because we are so connected online, because we're so connected because of all the social media, Mm -hmm. because like we can just send a photo. It's crazy to me that we went from like T9 texting to sending photos photos and videos so quickly (laughs) that we haven't really adjusted. I don't think our gray matter is suited for the amount of information we receive. So why go out? Why get in your car, drive, park, sit experience if it's just as easy to do those things? So I think the problem is going to be we're less and less communal. People think they get less and less off that experience. We're more and more isolated. But when you're not isolated, the feeling you get is unique to itself. And I think people need to remember that. I think we need to find ways to remind them that community is what makes us human. And that's what movies are. I don't know, as you were explaining that, I was, <laughs> I was trying to think of a single movie out there that seeing it on the big screen versus seeing it at home, I'm like, that's where it's meant to be seen. Like, that made all the difference in the world. I just feel like in, for whatever I consider to be a good movie, yeah, I can have a special experience if, let's say, I went to a premiere or a festival screening or something like that. But a good movie to me is a good movie on the big screen or on my little iPad. And I don't know, until I see something that really makes the difference where I'm like, you can only see that on the big screen. I have a very difficult time get, like putting things in boxes. And it kind of speaks to what you brought up earlier where, you know, we're our, uh, our idea of what's worthy of the big screen is skewed right now because mm-hmm. I I've had wonderful experiences seeing, you know, I mean, just because I'm, I have marathon on the brain, let's say seeing Britney runs a marathon on the big screen with a full house. And I've had a really special experience seeing Avengers Endgame on the big screen. And then also I think about something like the invitation. I was at the premiere screening of that in South by Southwest. Didn't really do it for me. Then I sat home and I watched it obsessively on my iPad and all of a sudden something sunk in. So I don't know. I Basically, the point is I agree with you. I think the idea of what's worthy of the big screen is something that is also completely unclear at this point. 
But I'll also pay to see something on big screen that's at home. Like, if, if Breaking Bad was playing in theaters, I would be there. Even if I can watch it at home, I will go see it because I prefer the communal experience and the theatrical experience, even though that's a made-for-the-television-screen-size thing. Like, El Camino, I went and saw it in, at iPick. Like, I went out and I saw it Sunday. I didn't touch it on Netflix when it dropped at midnight. I went crazy because I'm a season one Breaking Bad man. Like, that's my loss. That's my Sopranos. And I waited two days. And I'm so happy I saw it in theaters. Like, I, I think the theatrical experience is second to none. It's like a concert. I love listening to albums. I love listening to, to digital. I love all those things. But there's nothing like a concert. Do you think any studio exec or, you know, a streaming service exec out there has the future, like has the bullet points of the future plan in their back pocket? Because I was like, about, I was just about to say I would do anything to get into their brains for a hot second and know what their roadmap is. But deep down, I don't think anybody really knows. I think everybody's roadmap at every single studio right now is here's where we are right now, but then it could go this way, could go that way, could go that way. It's like a, you know, a weather forecast model where every single model shows you a different thing. I don't think anybody has clear answers. I think this is the most tumultuous time in film we've seen. Yeah. It's like even just trying to, you saw me like stutter out just trying to approach the Scorsese conversation because it's so like, it's so multifaceted and pulls in. It's not just some old guy saying, I don't like your movies. It's like, it's causing us to reflect on the entire circumstance of how movies are made, distributed, received, and discussed, which is a phenomenally difficult thing to process, which is why we keep getting these very finger-pointy headlines, because that's a lot easier. Yeah, and those are things people click. Well, we will not be be pointing fingers. We will be discussing everybody's opinion on the show fairly, viewing all sides, and hopefully, you know, adding something to the conversation in the process. But right now, got to turn our attention to some live chat questions and I really like this. For- oh, my God. oh, it's not oh, the second trailer, Barry. The second trailer of <laughs> You ran a marathon just to see the trailer. Oh, my God. It's the greatest trailer of all time. The new Twitter's crazy. I'm so happy you were here today. <laughs> Seriously, what, what did I'm you think of the trailer? <laughs> did, it, did it make, it make your, your Guys, day? Guys, let me tell you what's going to happen on January 17th. Okay. <laughs> the Dr. Doolittle trailer, trash. Okay, we all know it. The second trailer for Bad Boys 2 will break the Force Awakens record. We all know this, okay? <laughs> it is, Haley Fouch, this, this is going to be the greatest action movie we've seen in probably, well, since 2003. I mean, since yeah, Bad Boys 2, <laughs> obviously. It's so good. It's like comedy, action. Will Smith is going with the younger, and they come back. Oh, my God, it's so good. Now, you waited 16 years. I waited 16 years. Is this what 16 years ago you wanted, or is it better than what you thought the future could hold? I don't think my mind could wrap itself around (laughs) what 16 years of waiting could do for this. But here we are. Here we are. How do you plan to celebrate? Oh, man. (laughs) My brother just texted me. He's like, I'm taking off work. Come up here. We're just going to watch it all day. We're just going to stay in the theater and watch it the like, whole Like, yeah, do you have a January 16th, like, you know, get the diapers? Oh, it's circled on the calendar. I mean, it's, <laughs> we're, I mean, we're not going anywhere. It's, that's bad boys for life. It's, we all know. Haley agrees. She hasn't said a word. <laughs> Love it. Can't wait. <laughs> I am a fan of the bad boys. Yes? Yes? Yes! Yes! You've got one. <laughs> Harry, congrats on your marathon. How'd it go? Awesome. I'm alive. She's alive. And you know what else is alive is the Bad Boys franchise. <laughs> For life. For life. We'll see you guys. What you I was going, hoping what we would get a, a Bad Boys trailer reaction. I'm so happy he got here in time for that. That's perfect. That's <laughs> delightful. Gosh. All right, wait. Let's get one quick question in from the live chat here. MK Songbird is asking, what films that you've seen this year have had the uh, biggest emotional impact on you while you were watching it? I feel like Ooh, I know yours, Haley. Good. Tell me. Crawl. Oh, that's not like that's like physical, not emotional. Okay, I, but I like associated crawl with last year's Unsane, and those that was were emotional. those movies. Like I could tell you were radiating something, and I could yeah, feel it. But it was different. Crawl was just like a physical, visceral, like that. That's <laughs> insane. Uh, and and Unsane was like. I relate to this way too strongly. Don't try to put me in a prison. Like, ah, let me out. Uh, totally different. I, this year, emotions. Emotions. 
I don't know. What I'll just give just my give easy. I'll give my easy answer up top because it has completely changed the course of my year, and it was Britney runs marathon. I, <laughs> sobbed, I sobbed throughout the entire third act of that movie, and I think that whether your goal is to run a marathon or you have any goal whatsoever, it's like that is the type of inspiring movie you should turn to if you need to kind of like light a fire under yourself and have you charge forward to achieve something that you think is nearly impossible. Joker made me nauseous, and I loved it. Uh, I really liked the feeling of negative art affecting me positively, and I really liked feeling something so strongly. And then on the other exact same side, but the exact opposite, Avengers Endgame, the moment, like, Cap wields yeah. Mjolnir, I lost yeah. my mind. Like, I lost I've it. never had a reaction where I, like, felt like I had left my body, and I was just, a, a like, an astral form, like, shaking. Like, not only was I out of my body, but both my bodies were like, whoa! And like, <laughs> I had such a, I couldn't quantify that. And then, uh, like, How to Train Your Dragon 3, that franchise means so much to me, the fact they stuck the landing. I was just openly weeping during that movie for a lot of it at the, pre- it was mm-hmm. it was at the premiere, and I saw the director after, and I'd clearly been crying, so I was that weird <laughs> fan, like, grown man, like, take you so much uh and then on the plane i watched this movie called uh the professor and the madman on one of my flights and no one's seen it so i had a really weird time with that it is sean penn and mel gibson having a beard off and it's about the invention of the dictionary and i I, as someone that loves i love language a lot and i love the foundation of how we communicate and if you i've never thought and the reason i had this experience because it drove me introspective in a way that i didn't expect it to if you think about it how do you write a dictionary like how do you compose words that aren't assembled yet like who defines what language is and like how do you quantify what language can be mm-hmm. and it's two actors that are incredible regardless of their personal lives doing some of their best work in a movie that no one talked about and so I just saw it on a plane and the whole time I was struck I watched it back to back and then I watched it on my flight home so I watched it three times in 72 hours that's like an incredible ensemble it is too. powerful oh my. It's an incredible. I film. can't believe this. Right. I've never even no heard, one heard I've of never it. heard of it. But it made me so introspective. It changed how I'm writing, it changed how I'm talking, it changed how okay. I think of language. Uh, and oh. I had a really emotional reaction because of how much I think language is important and how much like English is such an organic and learned language and it's such an evolving language that we don't talk about the actual language itself. That's why I love hip hop so much is it's everything's relative and everything's useful and everything's verbiage and everything is shape and I don't believe in like the structure of grammar clearly. But I think that it's really <laughs> interesting like the, there's so many regimented rules that we don't use that we do use. It's it's great. Check out that movie. I want to watch it now. So definitely Endgame is the like most open weeping I've done and for the longest period of time. <laughs> it was like a full 30 minutes of keep it together, keep it together. I can't, I can't, I can't. And just, you know, like trying not to be so loud you're ruining it for the people around you. Uh, that's up there. And that was, that was like a very strong nostalgia type emotion and and payoff emotion and yeah lots happening there but also I, I can't believe I didn't think of it immediately a much slower emotional reaction was Midsummer, which Ooh. took weeks to unfold in me and like really made me think about ugly things I don't like to think about about myself and about others and and kind of feel it really slow and in the long term and I'm still feeling it I love how, like, we go to dark places and Corey yeah. finds the light in the <laughs> world. All, this. all right, lots of good recommendations for you. I hope you enjoyed this Tuesday edition of Collider Movie Talk. I always enjoy hanging out with you guys. Coy always. Haley, thank you so much for being here. Adam in the booth, Dorian in the live chat, thank you for all your hard work. To everybody out there, you don't want to miss Collider Live today because, funny thing, guess who's on the show at 10 a.m. PT? <laughs> it's Roland Emmerich, so tune oh. in to that I will see you tomorrow morning, bright and early, 9 a.m. PT for a brand new movie talk. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Duncan is here to keep you running with a much-needed taste of normal. To work, home, or work from home with the coffee you like just the way you like it. Whether that's a small hot black coffee, your daily 2 p.m. latte, or a bacon, egg, and cheese croissant and a medium iced coffee with oat milk, one sugar, two pumps of caramel, one pump hazelnut, a swirl of French vanilla, and a shot of espresso. I call it my p.m. pep rally. You should really try it. Whatever it is that gets you running, Dunkin's got you and always will. America runs on Dunkin'.